You're listening to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Digital sex work is booming. Just consider the popular platform OnlyFans. Initially founded in 2016, this platform has grown to feature more than 3 million content creators. It has more than 200 million customers, and it brings in about a billion dollars in revenue each year. And that's just one of many platforms where people are selling sexual services online. In today's episode, we're going to do a deep dive into the world of digital sex work. Over the last two decades, sex work has increasingly moved online, with some workers providing services exclusively over the internet and others doing a mix of both online and offline work. The transition to online sex work is changing a lot of things about how sex work works. So let's talk about it. Some of the things we're going to explore in this episode include how digital sex work is changing the kinds of sexual services that are bought and sold, how workers create authentic interactions with clients in an online environment, the benefits and challenges of working online, as well as how technology is changing the stigma around sex work. I am joined once again by Kurt Fowler. He is an assistant professor of criminal justice at Penn State Abington and author of the new book, The Rise of Digital Sex Work. Drawing on in-depth interviews with dozens of sex workers from around the world, this book explores how technology has changed the nature of modern sex work. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around and we're gonna jump in right after the break. The Kinsey Institute at Indiana University has been a world leader in scientific knowledge and research on human sexuality for over 75 years. As this year draws to a close, please consider the Institute in your year-end giving. To learn more about how you can support their work, visit kinseyinstitute.org support. Thank you and Happy New Year on behalf of the Kinsey team. Okay, Kurt, let's talk about digital sex work. Please. As a starting point, let's talk about how workers might choose where to even sell their services online. So in theory, working online affords greater individual control and autonomy, but you're only going to have complete control if you run your own platform. But you need to have a following in order to do that. So as a result, many workers will join someone else's platform to gain exposure. But then they might be subject to certain rules or restrictions and they have to pay out a portion of their earnings. So walk us through some of the things that sex workers might think about when it comes to where they might sell their services and how they might sell their services online. Yes. One of the funnier things about the book is that I was writing it during COVID, which meant that I had collected the data just before. And so I submitted the, the book to my publisher and they sent it back with a note and they said, we like everything you got here, but you haven't mentioned OnlyFans. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I haven't mentioned OnlyFans because nobody in my interviews actually mentioned OnlyFans because the interviews were done right before, literally right before the OnlyFans explosion. Uh, and so they said, well, is there anything you could do about that? And I said, yes, I've kept up with a handful of workers, you know, who are interested in the work and interested in seeing it being done. And so I can re-interview them about digital concerns and like what's going on with COVID and what's going on with lockdowns um, and what's going on with inflation. The list goes on and on. But so I did go back to them and asked literally some of those questions, like what makes a platform like OnlyFans so popular? And 
what was funny is one of the workers uh, told me, I think you've just answered your own question. <laughs> like popularity is one of the criterion uh, because if nobody's coming to the site, it doesn't matter. What's also interesting is that many of them told me that it's about cultivating an online ecosystem. So it's not even about like which platform is best for me. It's about how do I intersect platforms so that the people who follow my Instagram will also follow my Twitter, who will also follow my OnlyFans, who will also follow my Patreon. Like they understood intuitively that in order to get your face out there and to get your business out there, uh, you needed to be engaging with multiple levels. And so almost everybody I talked to, even if they were a cam worker or uh, you know a fetish model or something, they still had a relatively what they would call vanilla Instagram, where the pictures are, you know, slightly sexy. Like they're not, you know, super overt. Instagram has criteria about nudity, I think. And there was a whole big debacle with Tumblr years ago. So being able to cultivate that fan base and then filter them in the direction that you want them to go is one of the biggest concerns. Another one of the big concerns is, like you said, who owns the business? And how much money are they taking? One worker in particular, Isabel, she was amazing, was emphatic that she would never work for a site owned by a man. So she's purposefully sought out websites that would host her material, like not obviously not Twitter and Instagram because they are both, but she had sites there, but where her money was made, where people are giving her money, uh, that had to be. Uh, female owned, according to her. And better yet, if it was either a worker or previous worker. But again, there is a certain sense of privilege there where if you can choose, if you can pick and choose, you have an advantage that others don't. So for example, many, I'm literally working on a paper with the data right now that it's kind of an aspect that didn't make it into the book, but about like empowering self-image. Uh, so some workers said, oh, I never thought I was that attractive. But then I found this website that caters to bodies that are just like mine. And so I use that website. But they, another worker said, oh, I have a lot of advantages because I am conventionally attractive. And she said, so I can go wherever I want to go. There's not a lot of discussion about that conflict. Right. The conflict between, oh, I because of the way I look, I have to use a very specific website because that's where the clients are. And, oh, I'm considered so universally attractive that I can literally be anywhere. Uh, so when they're looking for a place, it's does it fit my brand? Can I grow an audience? Are they taking a big chunk of my money? Because as soon as you get above 50 percent, everybody bails. And nobody wants to give over 50%. And frankly, they prefer percentages closer to 15 to 20%. And one worker even said, like, I treat my website like management. If you had a manager who took more than 20%, you would fire them. And so she said, so when I find a platform that hosts my material, if it's over 20%, I bail. So I'm pretty positive that the actual numbers of OnlyFans are, are higher than 20%. But the people that do work there have said, well, quite frankly, it's because it's OnlyFans. Like it has this cachet now <laughs> just in the last few years because of some weird global event, everybody became aware of this website almost all at once. Uh, so that's why they pick it. But yeah, those are all of the reasons why uh, workers would, would choose to or not choose to engage with specific sites. 
Yeah, so many things to think about there. And this has me thinking back to something I've said on the show before, which is that a lot of people will say sex sells. And I think they think that sex work is easy and, you know, you can just get online and make a lot of money. But, you know, the reality is sex is a hard sell and you've got to do all these things to, if you're going to be a digital sex worker, cultivate a following. And yeah, there's just so much to think about there. Yeah, you have to find your audience. Exactly. Now, something you talk about in the book is how digital sex work fosters creativity. So some of the workers you spoke with described it as kind of like being on a television show where they can do whatever they want. And a lot of them make money by doing things that aren't even sexual. So you wrote about one worker who just sits in her underwear and draws very bad, terrible drawings and makes a ton of money from it. So tell us a little bit about how digital sex work allows for more creativity and flexibility in the kinds of services offered. She was one of the first people that pointed out that that webcamming can be creative and that she didn't want, she said, if I had to compete against what everybody else was doing, it would go terribly for me. But when I'm doing something weird and unique and I'm tapping into that part of myself that I actually am quite proud of, that's when I get, you know, followers. That's when I get viewers. And she even took it a step further and said, because it's authentic. Any webcam worker is going to be on some level performative. I mean, it has to be. That's quite literally what it is. We're all performative at different levels. I mean, go all the way back to Irving Goffman and his dramaturgical analyses, right? Like when we are in public, we are being performative. So uh, she said the viewers, the clients, the people who are paying can smell inauthenticity. Now, there is a gulf, you know, again, for a much like longer and deeper conversation about the difference between inauthenticity and authenticity. But she said when they sense the authenticity of this is who I am and these are my pictures and I'm having a good time, you get so many more views and clients. And she even said, and I enjoy the work more when I do when I do it that way. Another worker I spoke to who had kind of the same uh, thought process, but was slightly different was like, honestly, I just get bored really easy. And so I like to just go nuts and try something crazy. And she said that she made a wheel of fun, like a spinning prize wheel. And she just one Saturday, like thought up all of the, you know, just thought about a bunch of crazy ideas of things that she could do on cam. And she said, and I just get in there. And if things in the room get boring, I just spin the wheel. And suddenly I have more viewers because I'm doing something weird and creative and interesting. And my favorite segment on the, the, the wheel of prizes was sexy anglerfish, you know, like an <laughs> anglerfish, like with the light bulb, yep. she had this nylon outfit that she like reached over and pulled over her head. And it literally had an led light that was like hanging from, a, <laughs> from a <laughs> stick in front of her face the whole time and flapping this giant mouth open with these giant white felt teeth. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen. Um, she was delightful. So yeah, workers want to be creative because that creativity actually can be a commodity. Authenticity becomes a commodity. And that commodity is something that can be monetized. And when they see that they can make money doing it, hell, it just encourages you to do it more. And so you do. Yeah. The authenticity piece is really important. And it's something that, you know, in my own work as a podcaster, I struggled with it in the beginning because I wanted to 
be there to provide science-based sex ed and not make it about me, but I also still need to talk about myself sometimes. You know, I need to have that level of authenticity. And I think the more comfortable I've gotten with that, the better the show has gotten. But it's interesting in the arena of sex work where the workers themselves often want to be authentic and the clients want to have an authentic interaction, but the clients also often want the worker to adopt like a specific persona. So there's kind of that balancing act between how do you craft the persona that the person wants while also maintaining authenticity? It's not easy because that has to be inherently paradoxical. Trying to be authentic is literally (laughs) a paradox. (laughs) So, And uh, many of them acknowledge this. But yet, like I said, there's a huge gulf between authenticity and inauthenticity. So a wonderful researcher who, whose work, largely my work is based on her work. Elizabeth Bernstein wrote a book called Temporarily Yours, and she coined the concept of bounded authenticity, that you are being authentic, but within the bounds of this sexual commerce exchange, that everybody that's in the room is acknowledging that you're paying them to do something almost doesn't matter what that thing is, but, and that you want them to do it with a certain level of authenticity and that the success of the worker depends on their ability to essentially make it convincing. And what's funny is the workers I talked to, when I presented them with that idea, some of them would say, I don't do that at all because it's like the old saying, like, you know, if you, if you lie, like, then you have to remember the lie. So it's easier to just tell the truth. They like, you know, maybe I, I, I jazz up. I'm a little bit more polite, but other than that, I'm just myself. Whereas other people said, I do that 100% of the time. And not only that, I'm not even the same person when I'm in that room versus when I'm out of that room. So yeah, authenticity is essentially what Elizabeth Bernstein argued in her research. And what I slightly argue in mine is that actually authenticity is what is being bought and sold here. That actually sexual gratification is kind of beside the point. It's like a, it's an addendum to what is being sold. And what is being sold is really authentic connection. And if you can connect with someone via a webcam, then you can make money. Yeah, and I think that gets to another myth about digital sex work, which is that I think there's kind of this idea that a lot of people think it's it's just about the visual stimulation, that it's kind of like another form of porn. But what a lot of people are looking for when they're trying to have these online interactions is they want that connection to the other person. And they often request personalization or personalized videos and greetings and things like that. And to the extent that you can create that connection, that's likely to keep the customer coming back for more. Exactly. When they talked about ideal situations, they almost always referred to like a stable of reliable and generous and easy clients. And as long as you could have that stable of generous, you know, easy clients, you were in really good shape. There was really only a handful of workers who were like, no, 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 I like it to be a fresh audience every single time. There was very few people who said that because most of the workers who said, yes, I want that stable of, of reliable repeat clients, it was because I would know their expectations in advance and I can more easily provide them with the experience they want, which then pays me, which is, that just makes sense. Yeah, new clients are great and everything like that. Maybe there are, maybe it's a different kind of ego boost or maybe it's uh, just a different kind of fun. But when you know exactly what the client wants coming in and you are comfortable accepting that, 
and providing that, then you're in great shape. One worker even talked about how she literally just kept a, with her black book, you know, of screen names. She also just would have an, in it, have a little, you know, notes section that would say, this is what they like. And she would even color code them to say, if you're not having a good day, the worker themselves, if they're not having a good day, don't take that client because that client's annoying versus, oh, this client always tips well and I leave the session feeling great. So that would be like a green client, you know, but like a red client is like, only take this if you are hard up for money <laughs> and, you know, you have the spoons to do this uh, for this person. So that answer feeds nicely into my next question, because it was going to be about something that is often part of the definition of sex work, which is that in some definitions, they talk about this idea of indiscriminate choice. And basically what they're saying is that the nature of sex work is such that it means that you're willing to offer your services to anyone who's willing to pay for them. But the reality is that sex workers, whether they work online or in person, do a lot of screening of clients, and they're often very choosy about who they work with. So I think you just gave some examples there about how this screening might work is that, you know, you're taking notes and keeping tabs on things. But what are some of the other things that workers might pay attention to in terms of deciding who they might want to work with and who they definitely don't want to work with? This is where in the in the book and in the research, I actually had to draw a little bit of a differentiation, which I almost uh, didn't do throughout the entire book because there was so much overlap. But even that differentiation, I kind of tagged it this thing that I like to call digital symmetry. So even though it's existing in meat spaces and in digital spaces, it's the same process, but just with different outcomes. And so screening is their one of their big metrics. And what is screening? It's checking a client in advance to make sure that they're going to be suitable. And suitable means a whole bunch of things. So for in-person workers, meat space workers, you're talking about, are they going to be dangerous? Uh, you know, are they local? Are they married? Do they have a family? Do they have a, a reliable job? Uh, some workers even ask for things like bank account information. And then when it comes to digital workers, it's okay, the same kinds of questions, but within the bounds of the platform that they're using. So one worker talked about how behind the scenes, she could see how much usernames, how much they spend on the site in a given month or a given time period. And so she could say, okay, well, I see that this screen name doesn't spend any money on the site, so I'm not going to waste my time with this person. And then also in that same regard, certain screen names would maybe have notes attached to them that would have warnings that like this person has been verbally abusive or this person tried to find out my real name. Uh, and so screening, the process is the same, whether you're in real life or in virtual life, but the outcome is for digital workers, it's more of like, is this person going to be an annoyance or a waste of time? And in meat space, it's, is this person going to be safe or a waste of time? And so time wasters were one of the big themes as well. Uh, workers did, hated having their time wasted. And so they only wanted clients who would actually pay. But the way that you figure that out is by screening the person in, in advance and you have to ask them for vital information. So workers would say, give me access to your Facebook, you know, or your Instagram or whatever your social media is. So I can see that you're a real human being. I can, you know, and then if they have some, some workers said, Hey, if they have a family kind of like, that's better for me because that means less of a chance that they might be a problem. 
But this all leads to, you know, them asking for this vital information is actually led to some really funny stories. One of the funnier ones is that somebody screened me. <laughs> so I'm at my office, you know, at the university and the department admin comes and knocks on the door and says like, there, there was a call for you. Like, <laughs> um, and I was like, about what? And it said, somebody just called to ask if, you know, if you were employed by the university and if you were studying sex workers. And I said, what did you say? And she said, yeah, as far as I know, that's, that's what you, yes, you do work here and that's your research area. And then I asked if they wanted to give you a message and they said, no, thank you. And then hung up on me. And then later that afternoon, I had an interview with a worker who was like, oh, don't worry. I feel great about being here because I already screened you. <laughs> and I was like, was that you on the phone? And they were like, yeah, it was totally me. I called your job. And I was like, firsthand experience. So screening is a, a really great way for workers to not only stay safe, but to ensure that they also stay profitable as well. And that, again, leads to more choices. It leads to better agency. And it leads to, like you said, them being able to be a little bit more picky and choosy and say, these are the kinds of people I want to work with. And there were multiple occasions when people were like, look, this client is just a bad scene. It doesn't matter how much money they offer me. I'm just not doing it. Yeah. So sex work is definitely not indiscriminate in the way that some definitions portray it. No, 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 no. <laughs> so in the book, you talk about how the internet allows sex workers to not just connect with their clients, but also to connect with other workers. And so digital sex work can help workers to foster a sense of community. So tell us a little bit about the importance of community among sex workers. That is the main thrust of the book. I can't overstate how important it is because, again, that cultural idea of sex work, not only is it, okay, it's, it's done out of desperation and, like you said, it's done out of lack of choice and, like, it's indiscriminate. No, no. The other thing that we often think is that person is alone. And by and large, if you're talking about sex work, like, there is a seed of truth to that because, as one worker said, and it's, you know, in the book – yeah, I can do all of this screening, but at the end of the day, it really is just me and this other person. But what the digital community of sex work has done is create a place where workers can go to learn best practices, to get advice on how to handle situations, on how to avoid bad clients, how to avoid getting your money taken away from you, how to avoid things like arrest what to do about travel, like the sheer amount of information that the global community has that was inaccessible prior to the internet is staggering. When workers sit in a seat of privilege, they say, I want others to have these same advantages as well. And even if society at large doesn't offer those advantages to everyone, there are ways that the community can help facilitate those advantages by saying, look, if you're an in-person worker and you're using digital resources, never meet the same day. Always book in advance. If you're a digital worker and like, and you uh, want to know more about a certain screen name or a certain client or a certain website or a certain platform, come talk to us and we'll let you know our good and bad experiences with them. You don't know a platform that's owned by previous workers who are women, let us give you a list of all of the places you can go. And the good news is, is because it's digital, it doesn't matter if you live in Georgia and, you know, the website is hosted in Germany. None of this matters, but it's just there for your benefit. And it is all done free and clear. 
um, is all done just for their own benefit. When I started this research on Reddit, the sex worker subreddit had about 7,000 members. When I ended it, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 60,000. I don't know what it's currently sitting at, but I know it's almost certainly higher than that now at this point. So it just showed that even at the beginning, it was small, but it was there. It was available to help disseminate those resources, but it just exploded over the course of just a few years. And it's not going away. Some of the workers from Australia who participate in the global virtual community are constantly aghast at how the treatment of American workers is. And they go like, why do you put up with this? Why isn't the legislation changed? Why don't you form a union? Like all of these excellent questions that the American workers are like, look, I'm just trying to figure out how to, you know, how to put food on the table, how to pay my rent, how to, how to have a good life, all of those kind of things. But the global virtual community, if it didn't exist, that cultural view that we have would still be an accurate view. And now that we have a virtual community, the cultural view is largely inaccurate. I can't overstate how important it is. Yeah. Now, something else I want to ask you about is that, you know, I've spoken with a number of sex workers in the course of my own research. And the single biggest challenge that comes up is that they talk about the stigma associated with being a sex worker. But in the digital era of sex work, I'm curious about the extent to which that is changing. And I ask this because... I have friends who have gotten into sex work at various points in time. And in the past, you know, like a few years ago, if other people found out about that, they would be kind of shocked and, you know, it would start rumors and gossip and all this other kind of stuff. But then during COVID, like so many of my friends got on OnlyFans or one of these other platforms that now it's just like passe, like it's no big deal that people are working in this area. So just curious for your take after doing this research, do you think that the stigma associated with sex work is changing? Is it just changing for online sex work? Is in-person work different? What do you think? It absolutely is changing. And I was at a conference uh, you know, a few weeks ago and somebody asked a very similar question and they said, you know, what is it about OnlyFans, you know, that seems to buck the trend? and seems to be something that doesn't seem to be as sensitive to stigma. And my answer was maybe a little flippant, but I was like, it's cause it's funny. Like it's funny. And that's how stigma works. Like stigma only works when there's shame. The fact that OnlyFans isn't only adult workers is part of what makes it kind of entertaining. One of the OnlyFans uh, profiles that I follow uh, cause it's free is, um, uh, this woman, she drives a hearse. And so she made an OnlyFans for her hearse and, and then called and then, and then, uh, you know, labeled it only funerals, um, which is so funny. Uh, it's, it's funny. And so it's no mystery that naked people are on the internet. Naked people have been on the internet since there's been an internet. But it's also that we all use it. I, I, I always pull out, I can't help it, uh, this old, old, old quote from the 1800s. William Sanger was one of the first people who did a sex worker research uh, study. And in the intro, he put something to, to the effect of, it's about time we remove the veil from something that everyone enjoys in private, yet everyone denies publicly. And that couldn't be more true. And it's the fact is, is that, yeah, over covid People were trying to keep food on the table and everybody 
you know, unless you're really, really someone, everybody has sent a naked picture, you know, to their loved one, you know, to, you know, to someone they're dating, interested telemarketers. Uh, but, you know, so the idea of being naked on the internet is a lot less shocking to, I think, the general populace in 2023. And when it came out that like, hey, it's just kind of a foregone conclusion, 2023, most people's jobs don't pay enough. And so if you just say, look, I have a job, but I need more money. And suddenly there's this. People are a lot less judgmental because we're all just trying to get by, you know? And so I think that the internet is going to help reduce a lot of the stigma. It's been stigmatized, you know, sex work is, well, wait, actually, I want to really take that back because sex work hasn't always been stigmatized. It's really a 19th century, 20th century invention. It really wasn't until we started getting into purity kind of issues that like it started because for the longest time, sex work was seen as just something that happens. You know, there's just don't go down that street. That's pretty much it. You know, and that was that that predates all of this stuff. But the Internet and uh, digital communities are creating spaces where you can do the thing you're interested without being stigmatized. The other part of stigma that so not only do you have to feel shame, but you also have to feel alone for something to be stigmatizing. And again, like I just talked about, this virtual community of sex workers is worldwide. And it's other people who think the exact same way you do, that nothing you're doing is terrible and horrible and wrong. Uh, and you're benefiting from it. So why not continue to do it? It doesn't take much community support for someone to go, oh, I don't need to be ashamed of this part of my life. Now, there's obviously the legal hurdles, you know, and the other kind of socio-physical hurdles of things like, well, if someone found out that you were a sex worker, you could lose your job. Uh, you could lose uh, custody of your children. Uh, those are obviously huge problems that we need to get over before people just start coming out and marching in the streets and going, yes, I'm a sex worker. We obviously need to, to help providers in that respect before we can expect them to carry any kind of torch. But I do think that having a community, eliminating shame, and creating a scenario where what, I'm supposed to stop getting by because you feel weird about it? Fuck off. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I need to get by. I need to. So, and this is what I've chosen. End of story. Agency does, you know, a hell of a lot to reduce stigma. If you've chosen something and it's going to be stigmatized anyway, well, who cares? So, yeah, I absolutely do think that we're seeing the, not the last vestiges of stigma, but we're seeing a major shift in the reduction of stigma around sex work. And like I said, especially the Australian workers are like, I can't believe you all, y'all even put up with this because it's been legal in Australia in certain sections of Australia for, as one worker put it, two generations now. That in and of itself was enough for them to say, hey, I don't deserve your ire. Leave me alone. And that was enough. Yep. So many great points. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Kurt. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your new book? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I am Kurt Fowler. I am a professor at Penn State Abington, uh, just outside of Philadelphia. And my book is being published by uh, NYU Publishing. So you can go to nyu.com and uh, just search for The Rise of Digital Sex Work. And that's the best place uh, to grab a copy. Well, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. My pleasure. 
Thank you for listening. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter and TikTok at Justin Lee Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Lee Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. And if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a future episode of this show, you can leave me a podcast voicemail at speakpipe.com slash sex and psychology. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 